<laughs> Good morning. My name is Emily Schultz. Now, some of you have been commenting on my Christmas sweaters, so before we begin, I just want to tell you a little story. Uh, many of you know that last year our condo suffered a small house fire. It was our downstairs neighbor's fire, but the smoke came up through the walls and into our unit. Thankfully, my husband Phil was home, so he was able to get the kids out quickly and call 911, and firefighters came and put it out before it erupted into flames, so there was no real damage, but unfortunately, the smoke disturbed the asbestos in our popcorn ceiling, so therefore, our family was displaced for four and a half months, and much of our belongings, especially all of our clothes, were deemed contaminated and non-salvageable and had to be thrown away. Well, my Christmas sweaters were in a sealed plastic bin under my bed, and so they were some of the very few articles of clothing I was actually able to keep. It was a Christmas miracle. That has <laughs> nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I thought you should all know so you could rejoice with me. That's why I still have my Christmas sweaters. <laughs> Today is the second Sunday of Advent, so if you were not here last week, let's get caught up to speed. This year during Advent, we're asking the question that people have been asking for over 2,000 years when they think about Jesus. It's a question we're familiar with because we sing it at Christmas time, but maybe you haven't given much thought to it outside of that. The question we're asking is, what child is this? And this idea is reflected in Jesus' own words when he asks his disciples, who do you say I am? Last week, we looked at the first person to ever ask the question, what child is this? Jesus' mother, Mary. From the angel's announcement of her pregnancy to the birth of Jesus, as recorded by Luke, Mary got glimpses of who Jesus was, so we explored some of her thoughts and words as she processed this question. The question, what child is this, or who do you say I am, is an important one to answer, not just for Mary or for Jesus' first disciples, but for all of us. So our hope in this Advent series is that we're able to slow down and create space to answer this question for ourselves and to explore the person of Jesus through a few different lenses, to take a fresh look each week from a different angle of who Jesus is and to hopefully emerge at Christmas with a renewed sense of who this Jesus is, whose birth we're celebrating, and who we as a church community say it's our mission to follow and to grow in a relationship with. All right, let's jump into our focus for today in this scene from Talladega Nights' classic Christmas movie, right? Will Ferrell reminds us that everyone has a version of Jesus that they like the best. And for him, it's the Christmas Jesus. It's the sweet baby Jesus lying in the manger. But Jesus grew up. He didn't stay a baby forever. And so in this series, we're not just looking at Jesus as a literal child, but at who he would become. We're going to spend the next three weeks diving into what theologians call the offices of Jesus. What were his roles? If we believe what we read in scripture last week, that Jesus was born of Mary, but was the son of God come to earth, then why did God come in the person of Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? What mission was he on? What purpose did he fulfill? Today we'll look through one particular lens and hone in on one role that Jesus played during his time on earth but first, I want us to talk about Old Testament prophets. Now, there are a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. Whole books are dedicated to the lives and messages of different prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jonah, Micah. I sound like I'm doing roll call in a kindergarten classroom. Ezekiel, <laughs> Zeke, Zeke here today. We like to name our kids after prophets because they're good, solid Bible names that have stood the test of time. Some of them. Nobody is naming their kid Haggai. Not even the homeschooled families go that far. <laughs> Sorry. 
We like to name our kids after prophets, but how much do most of us really know about these prophets? Today I want to talk a little bit about Old Testament prophets as a category. They were all unique, special snowflakes, I know, but they had some similarities. There's a lot of overlap because they served a similar purpose or role. So what were Old Testament prophets like in general? What did it mean to be a prophet? If we looked at their resumes and saw the job title prophet, what would that be telling us? Simply put, it's this. Prophets were messengers proclaiming the words of God to people. They proclaimed the words of God to people on earth, the words of God to people's ears. Sometimes their messages were accompanied by signs or miracles that served as evidence that they truly were speaking on behalf of God and operating in his power and not their own. Those things are kind of like their job deliverables. They preach messages and usually they do miracles. But there are some intangibles that they bring to the table as well. Prophets were often seen as eccentric, angry, or even crazy people. Why were they seen this way? What was their message? Well, they usually spoke out against sin and injustice and called people to repentance. One common misconception about prophets is that they're always telling the future, but that's not the case. Mostly prophets spoke into the present situations of their day. At times, they would also foretell things about the future, but that wasn't the bulk of their job or role. More often, they would speak out about the things happening around them that were displeasing to God. When God's people are getting off course and going the wrong direction, the prophets call them out. Or when an enemy nation is doing things that are evil, they get called out too. Prophets were known for calling people to the carpet, and a lot of the time, their targets were the people in power the ones in leadership who had the authority and the responsibility to evoke change. So prophets were generally hated and oftentimes killed for their message. Anyone want to leave here today and sign up to become a prophet? No? Okay. I'll give you one example of a specific prophet. We'll look at him as a case study or like an archetype of Old Testament prophets in general. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. Now, I know, I know, technically he's in the New Testament, but since he comes before Jesus, he's considered as kind of a bridge figure, like the last of the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament ends, and there's a 400-year gap of God's silence. God didn't speak through any prophets during that time. And then John the Baptist steps on the scene, and all of a sudden we get one last figure who totally fits the description of what an Old Testament prophet is like. He's cut from the same cloth. He's one of the same breed. Everything I just described, that's him. Those are his people. I'll show you. First of all, he's eccentric, to say the least. Some people probably thought he was a little off his rocker. Mark tells us, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. We read this, and we're so removed from the customs of the time period and the culture that we might just imagine this to be normal. It was not. (laughs) Instead of living in a town with his family, John lived out in the desert wearing strange clothes and eating bugs. This is Colorado, so some of you are like, yeah, sweet. That's you for like a week every summer living off the land in the mountains. That was John. So for starters, he looked the part. He had all the intangibles of a prophet. But more importantly, he had a message like the Old Testament prophets, and his message was clear. This is from Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's his message. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The prophet Isaiah tells about one who will come before the Messiah, preparing the way for him, and that's John. His mission is crystal clear. He is not the Messiah, but he's the one who will come before him to prepare people, to preach a message of repentance and to prepare people's hearts for the one who's coming after him. He's the opening act. He's warming up the crowd for the main event. He's called the Baptist, not because he's Southern Baptist and likes church potlucks and casseroles, but because he baptized people. If you read on in Matthew 3, or Luke also records this, you'll see the crowds respond to his message and are baptized as a symbol of their repentance. But then he starts speaking out against the sin of the people in power, and these are the people who hate him. Matthew 3, 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And he goes on. Luke tells us how John gets himself into some really hot water. He not only speaks out against the Jewish religious leaders, but the government officials in power and calls out their sin. Luke says, But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Look at how John's story ends. Matthew tells us, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. John was killed for his message, for speaking out against sin, for calling people to repentance. Jesus even says of John, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is making a point about the kingdom of heaven, but don't miss the glowing reference that he gives to John the Baptist. This guy was the real deal. Sure, he looked a little crazy, but he was completely connected to God and in tune with the Holy Spirit. His mission was clear, and he was faithful to preaching the message God had given him. He called people to repentance, and he prepared the way for the Messiah who was to come. And he did this not from birth, but from even before birth. Do you remember what we read last week? Elizabeth, his mother, was pregnant with him. And when Mary, Jesus' mother, came to visit her, John leaped inside her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment and prophesied that the baby in Mary's womb was the Messiah who was to come. John was special, and Jesus acknowledges this. He was the greatest prophet, the greatest person of anyone who had been born so far. A little weird, but entirely faithful. Even in the womb, he identified Jesus as the Messiah. He was connected to God his whole life, 
was born for an incredibly specific purpose, preached what he was called to preach, was hated by those in power, and eventually was beheaded for his message. Why am I telling you this? Why are we talking about Old Testament prophets and about John the Baptist? It's because of this. Jesus was a prophet. This was his first office or role. Why did Jesus come? What did he come to do? What was his mission or purpose? Well, first of all, he came to be a prophet, a messenger, to proclaim the words of God to the people on earth. We don't often think of him this way. This may be a new lens I'm asking you to try on, but look and see. Just like John, Jesus fits the bill of what it means to be a prophet. As an adult, Jesus was homeless an itinerant preacher traveling around from town to town with his little band of followers, preaching a similar message to John of repentance and saying that the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God was near. His message was accompanied by signs and miracles proving by his power that his words were from God. Jesus was hated by those in leadership and eventually was killed for what he preached. Jesus was a prophet. Many people in his day saw him this way. In fact, we get the sense that this was the primary way most people viewed him. They considered him to be a prophet. We read this last week. Jesus asked his disciples, who do the crowds say I am? And they said a prophet. And that makes sense. That was the category people had for someone who seemed especially connected to God, who was going around preaching messages and doing miracles. The authors of the Gospels write about Jesus as if he's a prophet. In Matthew's birth narrative, he emphasizes Jesus being a new Moses. In Matthew's account is where we get the story of the wise men or magi. They weren't actually at Jesus' birth. They came later. It's not their fault. They missed the birthday party with the shepherds and the animals. They had a, a long way to travel. And by the way, we're never told how many of them there were. They brought three gifts, but someone could have brought two. There could have been like eight magi and only one thought to bring presents. All we know is there are multiple wise men, more than one, and collectively they brought three gifts. Anyway, if you're familiar with the story, you know it wasn't all rainbows. I guess in this case it wasn't all gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men are coming to pay respects to a king, so naturally they stop by to see the king of the region, Herod, to ask him for directions, hoping he'd be able to point them to where the new king was located, because surely he would know. This is a different Herod than the one who killed John the Baptist, by the way. This was actually his dad, and this dude was way worse. It was kind of a dumb move on the part of these wise men because Herod did not know that a new king had been born and he became so paranoid by this news that someone was going to try to take his throne that he ordered all the baby boys in the area age two and under to be killed. So the wise men came sometime between Jesus's birth and when he was two, probably around the later part of that time frame. If this story sounds familiar of a king ordering to kill all the baby boys under the age of two, that's because the same thing happened when Moses was born. Do you remember the pictures in the children's Bible of baby Moses floating down the Nile River in a basket? Moses' mother was creative in helping her baby escape a decree by the king of Egypt, and Matthew's making a clear parallel here. Jesus is a prophet. In fact, he's not just any prophet. He's the new Moses, which was a really big deal to the Jewish people. Ironically, Mary and Joseph escape Herod's decree by leaving in the night and bringing toddler Jesus to Egypt to live, which, if you all remember, is the very place Moses, leading God's people, escaped from. 
They stay there until Herod dies, and then Matthew draws another parallel of Jesus being a new Moses when they come back out of Egypt and go live safely again in Israel. You can read the details of the whole story in Matthew 2. The gospel writers make it clear that they see Jesus as a prophet. Keep reading through the gospels, and you'll see Jesus not only going around preaching about God's kingdom and doing miracles, but you'll see the harsh words he has for the Jewish religious leaders of the day. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You'll travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Skip down a few verses, and he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers. Who does that sound like? John the Baptist. How will you escape being condemned to hell? What child is this? Who is this Jesus who's going around calling people names and ranting about hell? Jesus is a prophet. Read through the Gospels and you'll see the compassion Jesus has on the people who are marginalized. How he lifts up the outsiders, the poor, the oppressed, disenfranchised, the sick or disabled women and children. And you'll see him getting angry at sin and injustice, calling out the hypocritical religious elite, flipping over tables in the temple. Jesus is a prophet. It wasn't just the crowds or the people surrounding Jesus who considered him to be a prophet. The gospel writers emphasized Jesus as a prophet. He too, like John, fits all the characteristics. He fits the bill. But most importantly, Jesus considers himself to be a prophet. In Matthew 13, we read, coming to his hometown, Nazareth, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. Jesus calls himself a prophet. Why does it matter that Jesus was a prophet? How is this a helpful lens in thinking through the question, what child is this? Or to take it a step further, how might this be good news for us? We'll come back to the last question, but first of all, I think Jesus being in so many ways similar to the Old Testament prophets is something that we, being removed from the context 2,000 years later, simply overlook. I don't think it's a lens we read scripture through very often, which would be weird to the people in the early church, to the first generations of Jesus' followers. They would read the Gospels and immediately identify, oh, this guy's a prophet. We don't automatically see that when we open the pages of Scripture. So I think it's important to point out when the contemporaries of Jesus and the early church asked the question, what child is this? One of their first answers would have been, he's a prophet. The disservice it does when we ignore this aspect of who Jesus was and what the role or office was that he came to fulfill is that when we forget about the eccentric or even angry parts of Jesus and his message, we sanitize him. We become like Will Ferrell saying, I like the Christmas Jesus best. We like sweet baby Jesus, so cute and cuddly lying away in a manger. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. We sing, the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Silent night, same thing. 
No crying he makes? Have you ever met a newborn? He was waking up every two hours to nurse just like the rest of them. From day one of Jesus' life, we're sanitizing him. We're cleaning him up so that he fits into the box we've made of the nice, sweet Savior we imagine him to be. And the precious, though not silent, baby Jesus grows up. And he is nice to the poor and the outcasts and the humble. But he rails on the religious people in power and constantly advocates for those who have no voice. Do we remember this aspect of who Jesus was, who he is? Jesus is a prophet, and that's good news. We need more of prophet Jesus in our theology and our view of God. Why? Because this is our hope, that this Jesus, who cares deeply about justice and righteousness, will someday come back and make all the wrongs of this world right. That he'll right all the injustices of this world, that he'll make everything new, and that someday everything will be as it should. Advent is about longing and anticipating Jesus coming again. And this lens of Jesus as prophet gives us so much hope for what it will be like when he returns. When we're weary, when we're in pain, when we're grieving or mourning, when we're anxious or depressed, when we're struggling in any way, physically, mentally, emotionally, in our relationships, when we look around at the world and it all just seems so, so dark and chaotic and unjust, it's in those moments that our hope is in Jesus, the prophet. We can't wait for his return. That what he started in his time on earth, he's going to come back and finish. It's not all fixed yet, but he'll get the job done. When he comes back, he won't just be a humble messenger pointing out what's wrong in the world. He'll come back in all his glory and his power to do something about it once and for all. Jesus is a prophet, but he isn't just a prophet. Jesus is a prophet, and he's more than a prophet. We'll pause there and explore another dimension of who Jesus is next week. But for now, I want to leave you with some questions to reflect on. We won't take time in the service to do it, but these questions are posted on our website at newdenver.org slash advent. And I hope you'll take time either today or during this week to pause and pray through these questions. I'll give you a sneak peek of them right now. If you didn't get a chance to reflect on the questions from last week, those are on the website too. But these are the new ones as we think about Jesus as prophet. Number one is this. The primary purpose of a prophet is to be a messenger of God's word to people's ears. What message might Jesus want to proclaim to you today that you need to pay attention to? Number two, where have you ignored the angry aspects of Jesus or the tough parts of his message of repentance? And finally, how is seeing Jesus as prophet good news to you in this season of Advent? I hope you'll reflect on these questions with God this week, and I hope you'll come back next Sunday as we look at Jesus through a totally different lens and continue to ask the question, what child is this? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are so complex. (laughs) You're so much bigger than the boxes we try to put you in. You have so many sides to you. We can look at you through so many different lenses and at so many different angles. And every way we look at you, God, you are good. Jesus coming is good news no matter how you slice it. So we thank you for the role that you've played as prophet that you came to earth to proclaim God's words, God's message 
to people. We pray that today we'll hear the message that you have for us. We pray that we will remember you not just as a sweet little baby, but as the one who cares about justice and who's going to come back and fix this world that we see is still so, so broken. We need you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.